Hey, before we get started today, I'm just going to say I'm not going to give you the regular Patreon pitch. It's been a really heavy week for all of us, and this is going to be an episode about COVID and COVID-19. If you've had enough COVID-19 content this week, if you need to give your brain a break, completely understand. Skip this one. However, we are going to be talking with a frontline healthcare worker, an ICU doctor at Toronto General Hospital, about uh, his thoughts on the crisis and what it's looking like for him. And it's not a complete downer. It's a good episode. Casey is one of my best friends uh, and a person that I found a great amount of comfort talking to uh, when I'm stressed just about anything. And uh, even more so now that it is a time of crisis that he is actually super duper expert in. So um, if you have room for one more COVID pod this week, I encourage you to stick around. It's going to be a good one. Um, But just want to say, to you, our listeners, we are thinking about you. It has been a really difficult week, I think, for everyone um, around the planet as we grapple with this global pandemic and what it could mean for us. So uh, do whatever you need to do. Um, if you want to shoot us an email with your thoughts, uh, please do so, ontarioloudmail at gmail.com. Love to know how you're feeling about this situation, what you're thinking, um, and what you want to see from policymakers and politicians in this moment. Yeah, I think that's all for me. On to the pod. Welcome to Ontario Lab, podcast of politics, public policy, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and today we are going to be talking about the state of emergency Doug Ford announced earlier this week in response to the escalating threat of COVID-19. As of Thursday, all recreation facilities, libraries, schools, including private schools, because the previous ones were already closed, childcare, bars, restaurants, theaters, and concert venues have been instructed to close until further notice. At the same time, the province sends $304 million in what it promised would be the first of several phases of investments to fight the impacts of the virus. Highlights include $100 million for increased capacity in hospitals, $50 million for increased testing and screening, $50 million in protective gear for frontline workers, as well as support for seniors' homes, long-term care homes, caregivers, and Indigenous communities. The federal government on Wednesday announced a huge stimulus package to offset the impact to workers and the economy. Won't go into the details there, but check it out. It's really extensive. But today we want to focus about what this all looks like on the front line. We keep hearing politicians in almost every address thank and praise frontline health workers, but what do they think? It's a question that I've been asking myself, but luckily I do not need to go far to get that perspective. Because joining us on Ontario Lab today is Dr. Casey Park. Casey is a general internal medicine specialist and critical care medicine fellow at the University of Toronto. He's currently working at the Medical Surgical ICU at Toronto General Hospital. Casey, welcome to the pod. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Uh, before we dive in, uh, I should say that Casey is one of my closest friends. We have been roommates uh, since first year university. I was the best man at his wedding. We still hang out all the time. And I got to say, man, I'm going to be missing seeing you in person regularly like usual because social distancing for you is going to be a bit more intense than it is for most people. You've let us all know that and we're, we're bummed about it. Chris, is this, this is going to do wonders for our friendship. Distancing, <laughs> heart <grow> ponder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absence absence makes the heart grow fonder. Um, but curious if you can tell our listeners uh, a bit about what your job is and what it's going to look like during the crisis. Sure. Um, so as a critical care physician, uh, I take care of uh, individuals requiring uh, various forms of life support in a critical care unit. Um, the usual is uh, mechanical ventilation. Um, as we've seen from our colleagues in 
China as well as in uh, continental Europe right now. Uh, it's a significant um, burden on the healthcare system as well as a significant burden on families too. There's just seeing mass amounts of people requiring a machine to essentially breathe for them. And so as a critical care physician, I work with a team of uh, highly trained critical care nurses, occupational physiotherapists, dietitians, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, spiritual care workers, social workers in a very resource intensive setting in order to um, either have people recover or have people or have uh, very valuable uh, end of life discussions uh, if the trajectory is not looking so well. So in the face of a crisis like this, um, we're doing preparations currently right now uh, in Ontario with even some active cases uh, requiring critical care uh, usage. And at the moment right now, um, we really are in the preparatory phases and um, we're really gearing up for um, a lot more usage of our critical care space for uh, COVID patients. And what does what some of that like prep look like? You were mentioning a little bit, you're kind of like one day on, three days off or something like that. And, but th- that could change dependent on the, on the, like, w- what is your sort of like life like look like? Yeah, the staffing model is uh, currently uh, unchanged. So nurses, they do 12 hour shifts, um, usually 7am to 7pm and then mm-hmm. uh, vice versa. Uh, physicians are on a little bit differently, um, obviously, with uh, the residents um, and residents in the critical care unit can be uh, in the ICUs uh, can be from different backgrounds. And usually residents uh, are doing 24 hour call with the fellows, also uh, critical care fellows um, in house to essentially help them out, guide them, as well as take care of some of the more um, intricate as well as uh, more difficult uh, situations coming up in terms of uh, critically ill patients. And so Staff physicians, on the other hand, they're on call essentially for the entire week uh, for basically one half of an ICU or staff intensivists are on for an extended period of time, uh, usually around a week or so. And unfortunately, uh, right now, given the possible burden on the system from people who are uh, critically ill from COVID-19, this staffing model may change. It's unclear exactly what that staffing model is going to look like at our various large hospitals or community hospitals. Um, but I do think that right now, from the resident, fellow, and uh, attending physician perspective, uh, we're preparing for a lot of change um, in terms of how we staff ICUs and how many people we're expecting, how many people we're expecting to uh, be there to staff the ICUs. Obviously, with people uh, having to come down for personal re- or having to take time off for personal reasons, or even becoming sick themselves from COVID. That's one of those things that I, as I've thought about it more is, is is really tricky is like, you know, frontline care workers are the highest risk of getting sick themselves, but every frontline care worker that gets sick is reduced capacity in the system. So like a situation like this can really, can really snowball. I'm curious, like as a physician, what information are you getting about the evolution of the virus in Ontario and what are sort of the best and worst case scenarios you're, you're envisioning? In terms of an information gathering perspective, it's um, it's been a watershed moment in the medical literature right now. From We have multiple publications coming out of our uh, from our colleagues um, in East Asia as well as in Europe right now, basically daily conference calls that we can be openly that we can openly access just about the situation in Italy, how they're managing different pieces of uh, different parts of um, the total care of a critically ill patient with COVID-19 and just ongoing, ongoing stories as well as both anecdotal as well as some 
retrospective observational data on how patients with COVID-19 are responding to various different things. And that's basically every single day that's changing. Um, preeminent medical journals like uh, the New England Lancet, uh, BMJ, um, they've, they've basically just been blanket accepting a lot of uh, various publications on early data of COVID. A lot of it's coming from our colleagues in China. Um, and we're starting to get a lot more data from Italy, Europe, and Spain, but uh, sorry, Italy, France, and Spain. And um, it's getting to the point now where the other part of it is uh, seeing the mobilization of um, free open access medical data from social media has been, uh, I've, I've, I've never seen anything like this before. Like we, we've seen a little bit of it with uh, MERS or uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Distress Syndrome and um, from our colleagues in Saudi Arabia, as well as the Gulf states when they were hit with MERS a few years ago. But Considering that this is international, it's just literally like um, the Twitter feed as well as uh, Facebook or just uh, Facebook groups for physicians just to share data is just um, it's been uh, it's been a stark change compared to before where basically everyone kind of kept to themselves at times. As a frontline worker, so your perspective on the vulnerabilities in the system right now, like what is your what is your ICU looking like? What? Are you know you worried about things evolving into as um, a frontline care worker? And what, what does that tell you about the vulnerabilities in the system? Mm-hmm. I'm privileged enough to work at like right now to be working um, and learning from uh, the people that uh, work permanently in the medical surgical ICU at Toronto General, which is um, the ICU where ICU that sees the highest volume of uh, lung transplants uh, in the world, if I'm not mistaken, as well as. Uh, a lot of solid organ transplants and uh, we it's a respiratory failure center for basically uh, a large swath of the country and so it's 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 a program that it's a ICU that has a lot of technology as well as a lot of highly specialized staffing not just from physicians that um, take care of individuals with very high complexity needs and the fact is that right now from multiple levels there's um, issues coming out of preparations for uh, COVID-19 and patients who are critically ill with COVID-19. The, the lung transplant program, I know for sure, has postponed all, uh, pot, all lung transplants uh, for at least a two-week period while we prepare for uh, COVID-19. This is obviously going to have um, deleterious effects on people waiting for a lung transplant um, who are basically possibly even on assisted modes of breathing at home waiting for a lung transplant. And this is obviously going to affect their quality of life as well as might cause some issues with uh, just patient outcomes uh, when it comes to, to, to the fact that their transplant will get delayed. We're seeing um, elective surgeries across the board. So surgeries that could have waited are being um, postponed, if not outright canceled at the moment. And um, while this doesn't necessarily have an effect on the ICU, this has an effect on the huge system, on the, the system as a whole. And the other thing that I've noticed over, and again, going kind of into the theme of, oh, these are just like kind of early observations is, um, referrals to the ICU from the emergency departments have been somewhat lesser than normal. And I don't necessarily know if that's the public not wanting to come to the emergency department for things that aren't necessarily like fever and fever, shortness of breath, possibly COVID related. Or if um, I, I, I really, I, I've been trying to think about why the volumes of these calls are kind of lessening and it's just um yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm just, I guess, downstream, however, I'm, I am concerned about the entire idea that um, there, there's a certain amount of population who will always need um, the 
always need critical care, uh, meaning some form of life support, whether it's a single organ um, or multiple organs not necessarily doing so well. And the issue is that right now with COVID, it may put a burden on our system where uh, we are, we're not able to we're not able to care for people um, with COVID who might need uh, life support. But then also at the same time, we might fit, run into issues taking care of people who would have needed an ICU in the first place, even without a global pandemic happening. And so that's uh, that's a huge concern on my end. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I you tweeted earlier this week, uh, and I, I I retweeted I think both from Ontario Loud and myself. Uh, current ICU status at capacity and overflow to surge beds, and not a single confirmed case of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Cancer plunge plans. Stop going to the fucking bar and stay home. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I think like that's so important for people to understand is that it's like there's a regular demand on the ICU that yep. is there and mm-hmm. you know the ic icos hit capacity without a pandemic and mm-hmm. um people just sort of think there's like all this empty space waiting for yeah. all the covid patients but it's mm-hmm. not thankfully the uh thankfully the hospitals have been um at least from what i've been hearing all across toronto uh, as well as a lot of bigger hospitals in ontario um the non-critical carriers of the hospital have been great about accommodating patients to make room in the ICUs. And so obviously things change hour by hour, but um, there are designated beds, um, at least a handful of designated beds now in various critical care areas at, throughout the hospitals in Toronto for COVID patients. And so um, at least there's an initial buffer for the system and space in the system for those people. That's probably really comforting for a lot of people to to hear, even if we don't have a sense of whether it's going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of not going to the fucking bar, um, what kind of measures uh, are you looking for from policymakers right now? Um, Doug Ford met a senior tweet um, because uh, he shut that down in time for St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of support are you looking for from um, policymakers and government? Yeah, um uh, obvi- like, and this is again things changing hour by hour. I uh, I was working last night. I came home this morning at uh, around nine o'clock in the morning. I took a nap. I woke up at uh, uh, I woke up at one p.m. and I saw that there was a significant um, significant uh, announcement from Justin Trudeau. And um, based on uh, and I, I do think that's a significant positive step um, in terms of this multi billion dollar uh, this what is it eighty two billion dollar uh, direct aid and stimulus package that Justin Trudeau is. Um, yeah. And, and so, but however, from the perspective of a consistent message, I do think that the public health authorities in Toronto have been giving, um, giving Doug Ford the right, infor- or giving Doug Ford as well as Christine Elliott, um, hopefully the right message. And it's the entire idea of being consistent. And the early, the early days of it were a little bit uh, frustrating, to be completely honest with um uh, some messaging from key government figures saying, oh, yeah, go out and enjoy your March break. And then literally right. think, within a period of hours being, oh, no, you should actually avoid traveling, <laughs> avoid all non-essential travel. And um, and, and I, 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 I can kind of empathize as well as sympathize because, yeah, things do like I, I work in an environment where things do change minute by minute, hour by hour. But um, that lack of consistent messaging, I think, was very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, and on top of that, uh, however, I, I I do think that um, at least over the past at least over the past um, 
uh, for like arbitrary handful of days, uh, there's been more consistent messaging to the general public saying, you have to stay at home. It's not just about yourself. It's about other people who may be higher risk of developing significant uh, issues with this um, uh, pandemic, as well as on top of that, um, the individuals that would have needed a hospital bed anyways, that may be in a precarious state because of um, stresses on our system. And so, um, yeah, no, I, I agree. There was a pretty rapid um, change. I mean, like, you know, last week, Doug Ford was saying, go on March break. And I, I you can sort of see, like, I feel like culturally we, we were in a different moment last week, but like, even on like friggin' Monday, uh, Christine Elliott was like, well, it's going to be up to everyone to make your own decisions about St. Patrick's day. And, uh, you know, like, we, we, we kind of saw how that played out at like university campuses across the province. So, so maybe as a, as a last question from the general public, mm-hmm. what kind of behavior should we be modeling to support doctors and nurses? Um, <laughs> I know in our, our friend group, like we've been sort of bombarding you with uh, questions and you've been extremely uh, gracious in um, uh, sort of like <laughs> meeting our anxieties. But if there are, if there are, uh, and so, so thank you. In addition to maybe sort of the the, the overwhelming public advice, which is stay home, don't go, don't go out. Uh, you know, even if you have symptoms at all, don't go out at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, distance as much as possible. If you don't have symptoms, keep gatherings low. Like, what are the are, are there things that we should be thinking about as a, a public that we need to be really keeping top of mind? Yeah, I think I think you've said like the main message. I think you reiterated and stated exactly what I would want from the public. Um, it, it's it's to reframe it for a lot of people, and thankfully, like pretty much every single person that I've been able to talk to that have have essentially been very receptive to that message. Uh, I, I do think that hopefully, it, and, and it's kind of weird that it took a global pandemic in order for people to look at taking care of each other as a community building thing rather and reframing this whole idea of social distancing as this community building thing, rather than this entire idea that we have to hunker down and take care of ourselves. And, um, and, and, and I, I, I do see that there, like, you know, there's people that are obviously hoarding food that they shouldn't be hoarding um, and panic buying and, and, I, I'm not a I'm not a sociologist. I, I I can't ascribe or describe the reasons why people are doing this. But then it, it's also the entire idea that there's it's not only just a acutely ill patient issue that's um, that's ongoing right now. I'm I am concerned about um, a lot of my work outside of critical care is focusing on individuals that are uh, marginally housed, um, so shelter insecure, food and food insecure people who are individuals. Uh, living with issues with drug abuse and and uh, or living with addiction I should say and it's it's the entire idea that if we can't take care we're really focused right now on getting protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers buying more ventilators uh, making sure that we have an adequate stockpile of ventilators but the people who are going to get hit the hardest um, by this are going to be the people that can't socially distance in the comfort of their own home and so it we the the deleterious effects of social distancing and um, a public health strategy has been the entire idea that uh, libraries have been shut down and public sp- various public spaces that individuals would need to go to in order to um, feel safe have been shut down uh, if they're um, shelter insecure. And so it's the entire idea that it's not just 
it's not just the availability of having a machine to breathe for somebody who needs life support um, and, and the capacity to do so in an ICU in a very fancy hospital. It's the idea that this is going to, if things become as bad in terms of the worst case scenario, as bad as they are in continental Europe right now in some parts of the United States, um, it's not just going to be the I, the ICUs and the fancy hospitals. It's going to be it's going to be individuals that would have been tremendously affected anyways, if not worse than the usual public. And it's um, and so yeah, no, it's it, I, I'm glad that from what I've seen so far, the stimulus package does include some things for from today for for gender based violence, um, increased funding for funds for. Uh, victims of gender-based violence and it's not just necessarily looking at the entire idea of this being a acute um acute uh, hospital-based problem but i do think that right now it's uh it, it just extends so far beyond that absolutely i mean uh there's something that really hit home for me actually about this yesterday i mean i was i too i was really happy to see the increased violence for shelters, uh, or increased funding for shelters uh, for women fleeing domestic violence. Um, there was a doubling of funding for Reaching Home, which is a program that supports homeless shelters, um, and the federal government. Yeah, it's kind of wild that it takes, you know, for all these problems that were, like, these things were just good ideas to do before this, um, but it sort of took a public health crisis to, to get there. But it really hit home for me how powerful that idea was when Doug Ford like said that there's no there's uh, he I think his specific quote was there's no level of support that is too high and there's no um uh we will spare no expense and for like Doug Mr like gravy train to be saying that like I I think you're just like absolutely right it's kind of wild how this has reoriented people to how interconnected different areas of public policy are uh, so thank you so much for joining uh, uh and you know letting your expertise to our uh, our listeners today i think they're they're really gonna appreciate it yeah and oh no thank you for having me on and i i do hope that in the next four eight twelve weeks that we can look back on it and think that all of this was done with the best intentions and done with the entire idea that we've we've utilized this buffer period that we had as compared to other countries with a relatively late peaking um with late peaking uh first index cases that we we've used that time well but um, mm-hmm. No, I'd be I'd be very depending on where this goes. I I would uh, be very um, uh, happy and willing to come back to uh, kind of update on exactly what's going on uh, based on uh, where things head in the next uh, couple of weeks to a few months. Anytime, my friend. Anytime. And that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. This is a bit of a bonus pod this week, so I'm not going to do a huge outro, but just want to thank Casey so much for coming on the pod. We're going to try to get him back as this crisis develops, uh, potentially answer some of your questions. If you have any questions about the policy implications of COVID-19 and what frontline healthcare workers think, it's almost cliche at this point, but some cliches are good cliches. People like Casey, people like the nurses that he worked with, people at hospitals are our first, last, and only line of defense against something like this, and just really want to thank them for all they're doing, and uh, Casey particularly for taking part of his day off to talk to me about this and uh, inform all you guys. 
We'll be back next week to talk about legal aid with former Attorney General of Ontario, Chris Bentley. Ontario Loud is Sam Andry, Alexi White, Grima Talwar Kapoor, and myself, Chris Martin. Alvin Tejo will be joining us again in two weeks' time, so look forward to that. And that's about it. We'll see you soon. <laughs>